good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 11 through 22. And we are in the middle of our series going through uh, the Beatitudes, which are the marks of Christians. And most importantly, these uh, marks of Christians are actually markers of Christ Himself. And so, uh, as we look at the Beatitude today, which is peacemaking, and it is this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so this morning, as we look to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the foundation of peacemaking, and that foundation is Christ Himself. So if you open to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, I would like to read it again because it's so good and it's so deep in this passage. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now you see in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near by the very blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace. And that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached to you who were far off and peace to, to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household, the family of God. Let us pray. Father, Lord, as we come, would you speak to us as we consider your, the work of your Son, Jesus, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, and that the very words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. J.I. Packer, a, a well-known theologian. So you can summarize what the gospel is in three words. He says you can summarize it in three words. And these three words are adoption through propitiation. The gospel is that you and I can be adopted as God's own children through the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, taking away our sin from us. This is the summarization of what the gospel is, that it is that we have been adopted, we can be adopted into God's very own family through the sacrifice of Jesus Himself. And peacemaking flows from this adoption that we have. Now one of the questions that you may have right away is, well, aren't we all children? Aren't we all sons and daughters of God? C.S. Lewis puts the question well this way. 
He says this, Now the point in Christianity which gives us the greatest shock is the statement that by attaching ourselves to Christ, we can become sons of God. One might ask, well, aren't we sons of God already? Surely the fatherhood of God is one of the main Christian ideas. Well, in a certain sense, no doubt, we are sons and daughters of God already. I mean, God has brought us into existence, and He looks after us, and in that way He is like a father to all people. But when the Bible talks of our becoming sons of God, obviously it means something very different. You see, in one way, yes, we can say all of us who are made in God's image are are His creatures, are His children. And He looks out for us. But when the Bible talks about us, you and me becoming children of God, this is talking about something very different. It's talking about a particular relationship that we have with Him. And the reason that we have to be adopted as children, as sons and daughters, is because the way the Bible describes our identity, the way we are born. And our human identity is this, that we are not born children of God, in this important sense, but that we are actually enemies of God. This is the sobering description of all people, is that we are enemies of God. If you notice when we were reading this, pas- this passage, it was talking about hostility, hostility, hostility between others, but more importantly, a hostility that we have in our relationship with God. It is described earlier in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. If you look with me in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this about all of us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were spiritually dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, that described all of us, sons of disobedience, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by our very nature, it says we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, this is the heavy claim about Christianity, which says that, in fact... We are born spiritually dead. We are born children of disobedience, even called children of wrath. And if you notice that this passage, the way it describes it, this is, this is our nature before we come to Christ. This is who we are. That we are born in this way not wanting God. We are born with desires contrary to His character. That the first commandment, which is that you shall have no other gods before me, that we are born saying... No, I am my God. That our essential nature in the way we are born is that of enemies. To horribly misquote a very infamous singer said this in a song, Oh, there ain't no other way, baby, I was born this way. There's no other way. This is how we are born according to the scriptures. And not only is it in our nature, but we are nurtured as enemies of God. It says we follow the prince of the power of this air. We follow Satan. We follow the world which is an inclination against God. We follow the passions of our sinful nature apart from Christ. 
that we are actually nurtured in this enmity against God. And so the point that we see is that we are born, in fact, enemies of God. But this is hard to accept. We say, how can this be? Not me. Not my children. My children aren't born enemies of God. I mean, my child's an angel. Except for at 2 o'clock in the morning when she refuses to go back to bed. That's when I say, you are a child of disobedience. (laughs) But that's not really what we're talking about. It's hard to accept this. We, We think oftentimes this is not the case. But the way that we understand it is that in fact we are all born with corrupted desires in a world that has corruption in it. We, it is an inherited trait from our fathers, from our fathers, from our parents, from their parents, from their parents, their parents, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And it is totally fair because this is described as a universal disease, a universal uh, description of us. It says all of us lived this way. All of us were born this way. It's the one thing that describes all of us equally, fairly. And ultimately, as Romans 5 describes it, it is that we are under Adam, Adam and Eve, our first parents, that they represented us. They perfectly represented us. And all the decisions that they made are the decisions that we would have made. And because of that, he is the most perfect representative that we would ever have. And so this is the way that it describes us. It is the problem is about who we are at the very basis. And that we are, in fact, enemies with God. Now, there's some good news, in a way, about this bad news. I mean, there's nothing inherently good about knowing that you are an enemy. This is horrible news. But what's good about it is that it means that we can stop, that you can stop trying to make yourself good by doing good things. It means you can stop trying to change your behavior to be accepted by God. You're never going to be successful enough because the problem at heart is about who we are. It would be like if I told Manuel, who was, I think, maybe five foot six, five foot seven, little guy, if I told him, look, you should go and try out for the NFL. If you try really hard, you can make it and you will succeed. Think positively enough. Try hard enough, Manuel. You can do it. If I told him that, that would be a complete setup for failure and total disappointment. You see, all kinds of religion and spirituality that says, think more positively about yourself, try harder, is just setting you up for an f- ultimate failure and misery. And so ultimately, it is good to know this is my situation, to recognize your situation. Before God, which is the problem, is who we are at the heart. And this is what we do in Ephesians 2, verse 11. It says this Remember, verse 12, I mean, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. That is, Christ, your, your closest brother, your closest friend, you were separated from him. You were alienated from the family of God. And that the promises of the covenants, that all of these great blessings were not, in fact, for you. And the way that it says, describing it all together, 
is this, the end of verse 12, that you were without hope and God in the world. You see, the core of the matter is that before Christ, we are born enemies of God. And the way that this is described us is that we are without hope and without God in the world. And this is the first part of faith, is to recognize that apart from Christ, apart from Him, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God. I think it is is sad in times when when I see people trying to find hope, trying to find hope in this world, trying to find hope in God, but they don't have the foundation, which is Christ. When, uh, when we first moved uh, here to El Paso, uh, all of my neighbors knew exactly who I was. And they knew that I was a pastor, uh, rather elderly. And, uh, and, and some of them are, very, are known for being very religious. And so they like to talk to me as a pastor. And there was one lady, I remember I was talking to her. She was speaking to me about her loneliness because her, her husband had passed away. She tears in her eyes, speaking about her loneliness. And I said, I know it is hard. I know your loneliness is hard. And, there's not, and, and nothing can take up the place of your husband. But the hope we have is in Jesus. That in Jesus, we have our great fellowship. We have our great comforter in Him. And that we can be accepted with God through Him. And she said to me, with tears in her eyes, she said, Oh, I just hope that I have been good enough. You see, this, that, uh, just a hope, a generic vague hope that you have been good enough is not a strong foundation to know that God has accepted you and pleased with you because the way the Bible is right now describing us before Christ is that we are actually enemies. And there's nothing that we can do to make Him pleased with you. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, how do you know that God is pleased with you? How do you know that you really truly have peace with Him? How do we know that we who are Christians, how do we know it? Peace with God, you see, comes through Jesus Christ. It is our adoption through the propitiation of Jesus. It is that our our hope for peace and acceptance is attaching, is being attached to Jesus Himself. He who is the perfect Son of God. It is the hope of being attached to Him, the perfect Son of God, who perfectly represented us on the cross in our sin. And He took all of our sin upon Himself. And He clothed us in His honor and in His perfection. So that when God sees you, you who trust in Christ, when He sees you, He says of you, you are my beloved child. That if you are attached to Christ, God looks at you and says, I am pleased with you. You are my beloved child. And I love you. That is the foundation of our hope. That we are adopted as God's children through the sacrifice of His perfect Son, Jesus. This is the foundation of our hope, the foundation of our peace with God. Look at the text at verses 13 and 14. 
talking about, this passage is talking about peace with God, but it's also talking about peace with others. But right now I want you to look at what it talks about in our peace with our relationship with God. Verses 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who were enemies, you've been brought near by the very blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us one. Peace in Christ. Verses 15, at the end of it says that He has made in Himself one new humanity. That is, whether we were Jewish or Gentile, whether we're born sinners in Adam, He makes us new with a new nature, one that is acceptable to God. And so we have peace through Christ. Verse 18, 16 I mean, that He reconciles us to God in His body, in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, the cross of Jesus, the symbol that we see in the cross, the cross is where in Christ all of your sins were punished. All of them were put upon Him. And that is where your hostility, your enmity, and my enmity was dealt with. Is on the cross that God makes peace between you and God. And we are reconciled with Him. And you see verse 18 then. And this is, I think, the high point of our peace with God. It says this then in verse 18. For through Jesus, for through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. See, the crown jewel of peace with God, the the high point in some ways of, of the gospel, of our adoption, is that through Jesus, we have access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Access to the Father. That is peace with God. That through Jesus, we can actually have intimacy and closeness and a personal relationship with God the Father. This is the high point of having peace with God. And one point I want you to to make out of this is this. That access, access to the Father is a privilege of sonship. Access to God the Father is a right that you and I have. Because we are children of God through Jesus. Access is a privilege of our sonship. I remember when I was a, a kid, uh, I went over to a friend's house and he introduced me to Pop Tarts. Those blessed blueberry Pop Tarts and strawberry Pop Tarts and those cinnamon Pop Tarts. They were and so beautiful, so great. And my wife loves to put uh, uh, butter on the Pop-Tarts and you can put them in the oven and they taste, they're incredible. And so I, I remember whenever I would go to his, my friend's house, they had all these array of Pop-Tarts. But they were up on the top shelf. And so you know what I do when I'm going to my friend's house and I, I want to have a Pop-Tart for a snack. And so what would I do? This is what I would do. I'd say to my friend, hey, go talk to your mom, go talk to your dad, and see if we can have a Pop-Tart snack. 
So they go and ask their mom, they go and ask their dad, and say, hey mom, dad, can we have a Pop-Tart? Sometimes they say, yes! You see, access to the Pop-Tarts was a privilege that they had because of their child, of their sonship. It is a a privilege of sonship. You see, for us, we who are children of God, we have direct access to the great blessedness of knowing Him as our Father. Access is a a privilege of being a a son or daughter of God. And we have the, the blessed access of being able to ask Him for things that we need. And we know that He answers us. See, access to the Father is something that we get because we are God's children through Jesus Christ. And in some ways, this is the crown jewel. This is the the beautiful high point of the gospel that we can know God as our Father personally. So my question is, do you know in Jesus, that you actually have direct access to God the Father, personally in a relationship with Him. Because verse 18 says it right here plainly, for through Jesus we have access in one spirit to the Father. This is peace with God. Sometimes we can hide this jewel in different traditions. Look, if you think that you need a pastor or a priest to provide access to you to, to God the Father, and I'm not saying that pastors are not important. I think pastors are important. But if you think that a pastor or a priest is necessary, you forget that it is only through Christ that we have access. Or if you think perhaps that maybe through a saint or through Mary or through any other friend that you might have, that they're the ones that are going to provide access to the Father, you're forgetting that it is only through Christ that we have access to the Father. Because if you go to these other people thinking that you can find access to God, you're just acting like me when I'm going to my friend asking for the Pop-Tarts. You see, if you think access comes through somebody else, it is not acting like a son or a daughter. But the gospel and the good news of our peace with God is, in fact, that through Jesus, the one and perfect Son, we can become God's children and have access to Him. And you see, this knowledge of this, the peace that we have with God through Christ... This is a powerful thing in our life. It can be a a powerful thing in our life in prayer as well. There's a book called The Praying Life. And in this, uh, there's a picture. He tells a story of, imagine you're going to see a prayer therapist or a prayerapist or oftentimes known as a pastor. And you're talking to them about prayer and your struggles in prayer. And they say this, to you, the pastor says this to you, what does it mean that you are a son or a daughter of God? You reply that it means you have complete access to your heavenly Father through Jesus. You have true intimacy, based not on how good you are, but on the goodness of Jesus. Not only that, Jesus is your brother. You are a fellow heir with him. 
pastor smiles and says, That is right. You've done a wonderful job describing the doctrine of sonship. Now tell me, what is it like for you to be with your father? What is it like to talk with him? See, we can know this doctrine and it is powerful and it opens the way for us to to have this depth of peace in our relationship with Him as we talk to Him. That when we get up in the morning and we have our coffee and we study the Psalms, that it can be a delight for us to have peace with Him. Or when you're driving in the car, to just be able to sit in the car and, and talk with God in your commute. Or at night, throughout the day, whatever it is, to know you have peace and joy, directly having access to the Father. This is peace with God, and our sonship and our peace with God fuels our prayer. But it's also the foundation of our peacemaking with other people. it It is the peace that we have with God through Christ, becomes the foundation in which we are able to actually go out with other people and make peace. You see, we have peace with each other because we are brothers and sisters who have been united to Christ. Again, look at this passage. Look at verse 14. It says this. This is talking about the horizontal relationship of peace that we have. He himself is our peace who has made us both one. That is Jew and Gentile. He has made us one from different backgrounds and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We are one people. Verses 15, that he, he makes us new, one new person in Christ. There's a new way to be human. It is in Christ. And that because of that, I'm one and I'm a new person in Christ and you're a new person in Christ, so we have peace together. And then in verse 18, which we've been talking about, that together we both have access to the Father in one Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit that gives us access to God the Father is a bond that provides peace with each other. And then you see verse 19, which is the implication of all of this peace that we have with God and peace with we have with each other, with each other is this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And you are members of the household of God. See, the implication is that you and I, we are part of the household. We are the family of God. And this is a principle for our peacemaking. The family bond, which is a peace in Christ, it compels us to actively pursue peace and make peace with others, especially Christians, because they are our brothers and sisters. So you are, you are called to actively pursue peace with one another because you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, for Jesus, brotherhood and our sisterhood in, is, is an absolute basis for our peacemaking. The fact that you and I are brothers and sisters. Matthew 5.23, he says this. So imagine you're, off, you're offering your gifts to the altar. And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then go and worship the Lord. Or Matthew 7, he says this. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Matthew 18, he says this, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. A lot of conflicts would be resolved if that's how we did it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See, Jesus makes it really clear that our brotherhood, our family we are family in Christ is a basis, it is a foundation on which we actively pursue peace with each other. And this is even what Paul does in his letters, in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is about a church that is being ripped apart by divisions. Absolutely ripped apart by divisions. He calls them, 38 times in that letter, he calls them, my brothers and my sisters. He says, look, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you agree. Stop your quarreling among you, my brothers. Or 1 Corinthians 3, he says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual, but as people of the flesh. Because while there is jealousy and strife, you are living in the flesh just as babies. Brothers, sisters, pursue peace with one another. I remember when I was a kid, um, I have a younger sister who was kind of mean sometimes. And um, she would beat me up, actually. And uh, I remember I would go crying to my mom and my mom and my dad and say, Mom, Dad, my sister's beating me up. And you know what my parents would eventually start saying? They'd say this. They'd say, well, she's your sister. Time to grow up and go deal with it. And that's the truth. Jesus, Paul, Paul is saying here, grow up. Because you are brothers and sisters, you need to grow up in Christ and work out your conflict with one another. Because you are bound together as a family. And this means, when, when you think about it, that you are brothers and sisters in Christ, it means that we, we're not always suspectful of each other. Now this is a lot harder to be, uh, to be done, and it's a lot easier said than it is done. I mean, you think about this. You and I are so different And the kind of people that become Christians and become part of the family of God are very different and sometimes very difficult people. Some of you are difficult, I mean, not not me, not Manuel, but some of you are difficult. But we're bonded together as a family. People who are very different and people who are very sometimes difficult. Think about it this way. Of Jesus' twelve disciples... One of them was Matthew, the tax collector, who, as Matthew, the tax collector, he he had worked for a secular, oppressive Roman government. Kind of a scumbag, you would say, almost. Working for a secular government. And then you had another of the disciples who was Simon, the zealot. And you know what the zealots were? They were... They were, in a way, a right-wing religious fanatical group actively trying to destroy that government. 
And when they come to Christ, they bring that baggage in into their following of Christ. That one comes from one crazy side and one comes from the other crazy side. And they're both following Christ. You see, it becomes difficult because we are brothers and sisters with differing backgrounds politically, ethnically, culturally, socially, with our views on how we do church, how we do ministry, how hot the temperature in the church should be, all these things are sources of division and yet we are brought together. And our unity in Christ, our peace with God should fuel to actively pursue peace with our brothers and sisters. Now, Ken Sand uh, describes a couple of of challenges about peacemaking. And if you're interested in learning more about peacemaking, shameless plug, uh, the next study we're going to do in adult discipleship before church is going to be on peacemaking. So the practice of peacemaking. And Ken Sand, in his book on on peacemaking, says that there's two really common ways to avoid making peace. It's called peace-breaking and peace-faking. We can uh, break peace. It's It's the impulse to go fight. Or we can fake peace, which is the impulse to run away and pretend that there is no conflict. And the scary thing about both peace breaking and about peace faking is in the church we can make both of them sound very spiritual and very good. Peace breaking, uh, we can make it sound very good. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said it this way. He said, there is a principle of selfishness. There is a principle of selfishness which disposes us to despise those who are different from us. And we are often most under its influence when we think we are showing a becoming zeal in the glory and cause of God. See, what he's saying is we can be selfish and serving ourselves while at the very time thinking that we are doing our Christian duty for God. Making a stand while we're slaying people with the Bible or something else. It's, it's easy to start attacking other people and think that we're defending God. But actually, we're just for ourselves. Third John, the book of Third John describes this. There was a man named Diotrephus. And he said this, Diotrephes likes to put himself first. He refuses to welcome the brothers and puts out of the church those who do as well. See, sometimes we can think, we can confuse our zeal which is good in itself, but we can confuse it and think that zeal for ourselves is actually zeal for God. And in that way, we can break peace. Rather, Galatians tells us, Brothers, if any of you is caught in sin or any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in gentleness. In gentleness. But we also know that there's peace faking. That is this uh, uh, idea of running away or denying that there's a problem. And Ken Sand in his book on peacemaking says, and he has had a lot of experience in, in doing conflict resolution in the church. And this is what he says. Peace faking is especially common in the Christian church. 
He says it's especially in common where people are often more concerned in the church about the appearance of peace than about actual, the actual reality of peace. See, there is, a, there is a tendency that we have as, as Christians and in the church to say, to protect ourselves. And to not want to, to have any of these conflicts shown and say, no, 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 we're brothers and sisters. There's no conflict here. We're all good. But you know if you have any siblings at all, that one of the marks, the fact that you are a brother or a sister, is the fact that you get into disagreements at times. It happens that we, we have conflicts. Conflicts in every single church. Because we are brothers and sisters. And we all are still sinners. And so the fact is that we cannot avoid conflict in the church because we are brothers and sisters and we are sinners ourselves. And so we must recognize this to build peace. That we are sinners too. So how do you make peace when you realize that you are part of the cause of the peace breaking? How do you make peace when you realize that you are one of the sinners? How do you make peace when the conflict points back at you? Will you run? Because the shame is too much? You get defensive and run away? Will you attack? And start marshalling all the defenses upon you against your enemy? Will you run or will you fight? Or is there another option? See, it is really easy to avoid peace by running or by fighting. I may have told you this story. Um, when I was younger, I was at a birthday party. And uh, this was in Guatemala when I was a kid. And none of the parents were around. And uh, we were doing the piñata. And they gave me the uh, privilege of being the first kid to hit the whack the piñata. So they put the blindfold on my eyes. Spun me around and they said, go on, Weto. You can do it, Weto. Go, Weto. You can get it. So they gave me the bat. And I'm going up to what I think is the piñata. And as I wind up to hit, I start whacking. And I whack again. Instead of it being a piñata, I hear, ah! Ah! I take the blindfold off, and I had found out that I had been whacking the birthday boy himself. And he was in a pool on the ground crying. Other kids were looking at me like, how could you do that? You're a horrible person. How could you do that? And other kids were laughing. And I felt, well, at that moment, what are you going to do? You look and you see that the bat is in your hand. What do you do? Do you run in the shame of it? Crying home like I did? That's what I did. Or do you fight and you bat and you beat the kids up who are mocking you? You see, here's the point. When you realize that you are the one holding the bat, you are the one that has broken the peace, you are the one that was thinking of yourself, insisting upon your own way, you look at the bat in your hands, and it is very difficult to make peace. Because it points at you. And the option for us that we do as Christians is to this, is to remember that those things, the bat, the sin, it does not define you. 
that you are a child of God. Remember who you are. That you are one for who Christ died. You are a son and a daughter of God. And though it may get very personal, and that you are in fact responsible, your sin does not define you. You can admit it, you can repent, and you can go make peace knowing that you are a child of God, accepted in His eyes, and that He says of you that I accept you. And because this is who you are, it doesn't matter. It won't get to you so personally so you can persevere and go and make peace with your brother. Knowing you're accepted a son or a daughter. This is how we make peace with our brothers rather than run away or rather than fight. So let us pray. Lord God, even though we were all enemies, We thank you that you sent your son to die for us. Not only that, that he lives right now for us and that by faith you make us to be child, children. And that we can know you, we can walk with you personally. Oh, what peace we have. And that to know that we are loved by you, our Father. That because of that, that nothing will change because of that that we can go pursue peace with our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would strengthen us in this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.